0: Years ago, a Christian brother introduced me to his friend who had tragically lost his young daughter and had worked through his trauma, had healed, made remarkable progress and by all appearances was doing quite well, seemed to be healthy and happy and working hard, seemed to be a principled man. However, the man was a humanist. He didn't believe in God, so he attributed his working through his daughter's death and moving ahead to his own moral effort. For him, there was good without a God. The American Humanist Association's tagline is good without a God. Humanism is a way of thinking that denies God's existence and all supernatural beliefs, and affirms human ability and responsibility to lead ethical lives of personal fulfillment that aspire to the greater good. In other words, it encourages good without a God. Humanists strive to be rational and moral people. They believe that it is their responsibility to be thoughtful and principled, always aspiring to the greater good. They find fulfillment in striving for good without God. And humanism is the spirit of our day. It pervades every aspect of culture. Education strives for good without a God. The arts strive for good without a God. Science and medicine strive for good without a God. Counseling, business, finance, athletics, entertainment, social justice, you name it. Culture strives for good without God. Humanism pervades many churches as well. One worldview is actually called Christian humanism. Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist Denton coined the term moralistic, therapeutic deism in their 2005 book, Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. In their study, they... they um, interviewed around 3,000 teenagers and saw patterns in their religious and spiritual beliefs which Smith and Denton labeled moralistic therapeutic deism. And they summarize uh, moralistic therapeutic deism with the following five points. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Moralistic, therapeutic deism is not Christianity. And yet a lot of people in America believe those five points. For many churchgoers, life is more about a self-disciplined morality than it is about spirit-filled discipleship. There's a difference between self-disciplined morality and spirit-filled discipleship. In other words, people can strive to be moral without ever repenting, without ever being converted, without ever trusting Christ, and without ever being truly filled with the Spirit. Michael Horton talks about a Christless Christianity, the morality of Christianity without the power of the cross daily conforming one to Christ. So I want to present the difference between self-disciplined morality and Spirit-filled discipleship. The point that I want to make today is this true disciples of Jesus are united to Christ by faith, indwelt by his Spirit, becoming more and more Spirit filled, and striving more and more to obey God's law with gratitude. I think most people admit that they're not perfect. That they do sometimes do bad things. I I think most people will admit they need to be better in some way. But most people seek to do better without Christ. They clean and tidy up their house but never make room for Jesus at the head of their table. There's a difference between self-disciplined morality and spirit-filled discipleship. And I hope that you see that in the text today. First, let's look into self-disciplined morality. From the beginning of his ministry, Jesus preached repentance, Matthew four seventeen. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we've watched the monotheistic and moral Pharisees and scribes become increasingly hostile to Jesus. So hostile, they attributed his divine ministry to satanic power and sought to kill him. Well, Jesus wasn't shy about rebuking the self-disciplined morality of the Pharisees and scribes. He called them evil, as we saw in Matthew twelve thirty-three through 37. Later in Matthew 23, Jesus likens the scribes and Pharisees to whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Jesus told them, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You see, self-discipline morality, it looks good from the outside. But the inside is evil, hypocritical, and lawless. Jesus, he had just cast out a demon from a man and restored the man's sight and speech. So, Jesus used an illustration of demon possession to make a point about the danger and ineffectiveness of self-disciplined morality. Listen to verses 43 and, uh, through 45 again. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Now I have to admit, as I'm beginning to prepare for this, I'm like, what is he saying? What does this mean? This is a a somewhat difficult uh, topic or or, uh, text on, on the surface. But with a little bit of work, with a little bit of thought, it actually becomes quite clear what he's saying. So let's work together at this. Unclean spirits are demons. Demons work for Satan and they do possess people in order to control them and ruin them. Now, we shouldn't read too much into Jesus' illustration about demons, shouldn't get distracted by fanciful theories about demons and and make up a whole demonology from this. Rather, we should just simply realize that Jesus is making a point about that evil generation. In Jesus' illustration, a demon goes out from a possessed person. We don't know why, but the demon leaves and passes through waterless places seeking rest. That's an obscure phrase. It seems safe to say that demons are restless and agitated creatures. After all, they're at odds with God. Certainly, waterless places are not refreshing places. Arid wastelands, well, they seem quite fitting for miserable demons. In Luke 8, a demon is said to drive his host into the desert So this restless demon passes through arid wastelands. Having found no rest, the demon decides to go back to his house, meaning the person that he once inhabited. When the demon returns, he finds that the person is doing quite well. No longer disturbed. They've they've gotten their life in order. Now understand that demon possession throws people into chaos. In Mark 9, a little boy is possessed by a demon And the demon would seize the boy and throw him down. And the boy would foam at the mouth, grind his teeth, and become rigid. Sometimes the demon would cast the boy into fire or water to kill the boy. You might remember when Jesus cast out the demons and sent them into the pigs. The pigs end up drowning themselves in the lake. Demons cause chaos. So in Jesus' illustration, after the demon left the person, the person cleaned themselves up. And put themselves in order. They swept up here. They organized things there. Since the demon's departure, they are much better off. More rational. More friendly. More involved. More connected. Probably more self-disciplined and successful. Maybe, maybe they cleaned up their hygiene and their appearance. Maybe they got in shape and they lost some weight. Maybe, maybe they set some new goals. Maybe they got a new job. Maybe they became more religious and more spiritual and, and more morally self-disciplined. Things were going well for them since the demon left. They, the swept and ordered house is a metaphor for the person's inner self, their life. But notice something significant. Please don't miss this in the passage. The house is empty. It's cleaned up. It's well-ordered. But it's empty. There's no master of the house in the house. The person is empty of the spirit of Christ. In sound mind, uh, self-disciplined, well-ordered, just empty. Christine and I watched a movie, Leave No Trace. And in one part of the movie, uh, the drifting father and daughter find a cabin in the woods and they break in and they occupy the cabin for a while. And this kind of thing happens in various movies where... People come upon this deserted cabin in the woods and then they kick in the door or something and they they make themselves at home and grab whatever is in there. And scenes like this don't usually show vagrants or fugitives breaking into a cabin where a Navy SEAL and his family are having a a marvelous time eating and drinking and and playing games together. That usually doesn't happen. Usually, the sign of activity in the house deters vagrants and, and fugitives from entering. The person in Jesus' illustration was an empty cabin. A clean, orderly, and empty cabin. No life inside, no master of the house, no defense against evil entering, just empty. Without the Holy Spirit living inside, the door is open for demon possession because the person has no true defense against evil Do you understand? Do you understand what he's saying? A a person can clean themselves up on their own. We see it happen all the time. They make changes with a little bit of self-discipline. Good without God, right? But self-discipline moral effort still leaves a person vulnerable to evil because they do not have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them, inhabiting them. They don't have that defense where the Holy Spirit is Defending and guarding them against evil. They're empty and they're exposed. So, cunningly, the demon goes and gets seven more demons who are worse, and the entourage of eight demons comes back and enters the person easily because the person has no defense. First, it was only one demon, now it's eight demons inhabiting the person. They got much worse. And Jesus used that illustration to tell the people, so also will it be with this evil generation. That generation, and and this is really interesting to think about, process what's going on here, that generation believed in the existence of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They believed in Moses. They believed in the Ten Commandments, in God's law. They were God-fearing, self-disciplined, and moral people but they were not spirit-filled people. They rejected Christ. There's a huge difference between self-disciplined morality and spirit-filled discipleship. Big difference. Empty of the spirit. They were susceptible to horrific evil because their self-righteous religion and morality did not take them far enough. They eventually crucified God's precious son. That's evil, and they were glad to do it. Self-disciplined moral people are among the most vulnerable and defenseless people because they assume the best about themselves. They assume their own goodness. They consider themselves functioning at a high ethical and moral level, but they are empty of the Holy Spirit and therefore have no defense against horrific evil. In time, empty people are overcome by evil. And Jesus' point does not only apply to that generation. It applies more broadly to all of humanity. John Calvin noted about human nature apart from Christ. He said, Now what is here said relates not to one individual or to another, but to the whole posterity of Adam. And this is the glory of our nature, that the devil has his seat within us and inhabits both the body and the soul, so much the more illustrious is the display of the mercy of God when we, who were the loathsome dens of the devil, are made temples to himself and consecrated for a habitation of his spirit. Human nature is infected by evil. Apart from Christ, we are truly loathsome dens of the devil. Jesus called people the children of the devil. He called people the children of hell. He called his own disciples evil. How much more, how much more glorious and amazing is the mercy and grace and power of God to transform evil people into temples in which the Holy Spirit of God dwells and lives and works. Friends, empty means not filled with God's grace and spirit. The empty person assumes they're doing pretty well on their own. The empty person is pretty self-confident. The empty person is proud of how far they've come. Look, I cleaned myself up. Look what I have accomplished. But they're empty. They're empty of God, empty of grace, empty of defense against evil. They are exposed and they are unguarded. Empty is scary because it wrongly assumes that self-discipline morality is enough. It assumes that good behavior is enough. Good behavior is not enough. The empty house, the empty house must be filled. The empty house needs a master of the house. We need Christ living in us to defend and to protect us against all evil. We pray this, brothers and sisters, deliver us from evil. That prayer presupposes that Christ is the defense of our house. We need to be indwelled and filled with the Spirit of Christ or else we will be overcome by evil. Now many people, they overcome big obstacles in life. Maybe they got counseling and it helped them make some changes. They, they finally worked through the abuse they worked through and are now mentally and emotionally well. They beat alcoholism. They beat the drug addiction. They, they rebounded from the divorce. And hey, they're dating again. And, and they picked themselves up after getting fired from that job. And and hey, they, they found a better job. And now they're, they're doing really good at it. And they're starting to finally pay off debt. And they're saving some money. And they're even investing. And, and they're now helping out at the homeless shelter. And things are doing really well. They're, they're, they're going great. And they're happy. And they're content. But they're in- They seek good without God and are empty of the Spirit of Christ, therefore, they are in danger of much greater evil. Okay, so they've overcome addictions, depression, loneliness, failure, poor health, financial hardship. They've they've risen above, but now they are filled with the evils of self-importance, self-righteousness, self-confidence, self-assurance. Self-reliance, they are in better order to be sure, but they are empty and they will be in time overcome by evil, unless the master takes up residence within them. J.C. Ryle exhorts us from the past, let us never be content with a partial reformation of life. Without, through, without thorough conversion to God and mortification of the whole body of sin. It is a good thing to strive to cast sin out of our hearts. But let us take care that we also receive the grace of God in its place. Let us make sure that we not only get rid of the old tenant, the devil, but have also got dwelling in us the Holy Spirit. Unquote. Where will self-disciplined morality get us if we are not indwelt by the Spirit? This brings us to Spirit-filled discipleship. Some early manuscripts do not include verse 47. That's why the ESV kind of strangely goes from verse 46 to verse 48. And it puts verse 47 in, in a note. Other translations include verse verse, uh, 47 in the text. Some scholars think that verse 47 was a transcription error by scribes. Maybe, maybe not. Either way, the sense of the text is absolutely clear and undisputable. Listen to it again with verse 47 this time. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside asking to speak to you. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Let's get the scene there. Jesus is, uh, well, the verse after it says this, uh, that same day, Jesus went out of the house. So presumably, Jesus is inside a very crowded house. People are all around him, and it's flowing out the door, and his family is outside wanting to get close to him to talk with him. Now, I don't have time to go into the solid biblical arguments for this. It, uh, this point is contested by Roman Catholicism, but it is clearly Mary and her other biological sons waiting outside to talk to Jesus. Can't defend that, but there are good arguments for it. There's no good reason to doubt that it was Mary and it was Jesus' half-brothers. So Mary and her other boys showed up wanting to talk to Jesus. A man alerted Jesus to this, and the sense seems to be that they're assuming some special privilege or some standing before Jesus in order to get his ear. They, they want him to, to stop talking. Uh, to teaching so that they can talk with him. So we're not sure exactly the motivation of what was going on there, but they seem to think that they have a right to have his ear. Now in those days and in today as well, the family is really, really important. You know how family, how family is important. Family often gets priority over other relationships. But Jesus, and, and make no mistake, Jesus loved and cared for his mom and his dad and his brothers and sisters. He loved his family. Make no mistake about that. But Jesus did not consider blood relation most important to him. Another familial relationship was more important to Jesus, a relation that surpassed bloodline. Verse 28. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Now, why would he ask that question? that seems like a kind of an odd question to ask. Jesus asked the question to get people thinking about another family, another relation to him, one closer and one dearer to his heart than blood relatives. Jesus was asking, who is truly and inseparably related to me? What people are my closest and dearest relatives? Verses 49 and 50 and stretching out his hand toward his disciples. He said, Here are, or behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Do you understand what Jesus meant? His family, the people closest and dearest to his heart are those who have received his grace and spirit, who have received him as the Christ, who have truly repented and trusted in him and who are together with him doing the will of the Father. The disciples were doing the will of the Father. His true disciples are his closest kin. This was a massive statement about salvation and union and fellowship with Christ Jesus the Lord. Jesus stretched out his hand toward his disciples, toward the men that he had chosen and called to himself. He had extended grace and salvation to these men. His spirit was working inside these men. He was teaching and leading these men and they were following willingly and joyfully. These few disciples, these disciples. This this motley crew, by God's sovereign grace and spirit, were repenting of their sins, coming to Christ in true faith, and responding to him with thankful obedience to the Father. They were his family. They were the family of God. They were different from the self-disciplined and moral Pharisees, scribes, and crowds. They were spirit-filled disciples. What relationship is most sacred to Jesus? The answer has nothing to do with bloodline and physical descent. Those nearest and dearest to Christ are those who have received him by grace alone, through faith alone, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and who are becoming more and more filled with his spirit to do the will of the Father with gratitude, thankfulness, with joy. So my question is, does this, comfort and assure you brothers and sisters does this do something in you to think that Jesus considers you and Jesus considers me his closest family the ones that he loves the most the king considers us nearest and dearest to his heart does that encourage you does that comfort you oh to have Jesus Christ love us but how can we really know that it is so whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. We know who's in the family because they live according to the family code. We know who is nearest and dearest to Christ by how they, like Christ, do what pleases the Father. Doing the Father's will is evidence, is validation, is proof that one belongs to Christ in the closest and most dearest relationship. Dr. Doriani makes a profound, profound point here, and folks, we really need to listen carefully and make sure that we get this point. Doriani says, whoever does the will of my father is in his spiritual, does the will of the father is in the, his spiritual family. He does not say, whoever does the will of the father can enter my family. We do not become the brothers and sisters of Christ by our obedience Rather, we identify ourselves as the brothers and sisters of Christ by our obedience. We identify ourselves as the brothers and sisters of Christ by our obedience to the Father. Our intimate fellowship with Christ is confirmed by the fruit of our faith, our spirit-filled obedience to the Father. Now, there's a connection here to being indwelt by the Spirit, one who is inhabited by the Holy Spirit is committed to doing the Father's will, doing God's will. And though there is, their obedience is imperfect, who among us perfectly obeys? Not I. It is imperfect. It looks bad sometimes. All right? But it's there. So the commitment to do God's God's will is there, and we do actually, with increasing faithfulness, obey God. Growing obedience to the Father is the fruit of true faith and union in Christ. A growing obedience. We see this in the lives of the 11 disciples. My goodness, watch what they were at the beginning, but then throughout the ministry of Jesus, just watch His grace and His Spirit work in them, strengthening them, and these men ended up giving their lives for Christ doing the work of God, doing the will of Christ. Do you know how Jesus defined God's will in John 6? In John 6, people asked Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus said a few verses later, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. To do the Father's will, one must continually come to Christ to put their complete trust in him when you repent of your sins brothers and sisters you are doing the Father's will. When, when you come to Christ your Lord and your Savior daily in need in desperate need of His grace and He grants you His grace and grants you His Spirit you are doing your Father's will. When you are being filled with the Spirit and living for the glory of your Father in Heaven you are doing your Father's will. Dr. Hendrickson explained the Father's will To which reference is made here is, of course, his revealed will, what he reveals to us in Scripture, his revealed will, the will that can be done by man through God's enabling grace. Briefly, that will may be summarized as follows: a, that man repents from his sin; b, accepts Jesus as his Savior and Lord; and c. In the spirit and out of gratitude lives to the glory of God. End quote. Folks, this is guilt, grace, gratitude. This is guilt, grace, gratitude. Guilt, grace, gratitude is the summary of the Christian experience. God graciously rescues you from your sin and misery and graciously unites you to Christ. The Spirit of Christ graciously takes residence inside of your heart and from within you, the master of the house graciously and powerfully defends you against evil and compels you daily to do good. To do the will of the Father, which comforts and assures you of your oneness with Christ. What a beautiful and marvelous work of grace. Calvin was right to say, to sum up the whole, this passage first teaches us to behold Christ with the eyes of faith. And secondly, it informs us that everyone who is regenerated by the Spirit and gives himself up entirely to God for true justification is thus admitted to the closest union with Christ and becomes one with Him. Unquote. Folks, right there is your comfort. Right there is your assurance in life and in death. We belong to Christ. The Spirit has regenerated us, has given us new birth. And and we are admitted by the grace and Spirit of God into the closest union with Christ. We are truly one with our Savior, one with Christ. Spirit-filled discipleship is indivisible union and intimacy with Christ Jesus the Lord in His church. Self-disciplined morality is not enough. It will never be enough. It leaves people empty of the most significant and meaningful relationship, a relationship with God, a relationship with Christ. Many self-disciplined and moral people will perish in hell because they were not united to Christ, indwelt by His Spirit, filled with His Spirit, and never did they do the will of the Father with thankfulness and gratitude for receiving grace. Excuse me. They are vacant. They are unoccupied. They are empty of God and everything good. Jesus is the preeminent, perfect, and only begotten Son of God. He is not empty. He is filled with the Spirit, and He always does the will of His Heavenly Father. He always does His will. He is, therefore, the perfect one, the one who keeps covenant, the one who obeys for us, And we are defined by Him. And we do the Father's will because doing the Father's will is evidence of our adoption. Oh, our precious adoption. For the adopted son or daughter to leave the loving warmth and security of the home only to return to their previous life in the orphanage makes absolutely no sense. The true siblings of Jesus are those who daily repent of their sins, daily put on Christ, daily walk by the Spirit, and daily act like Jesus in obedience to the Father. Their spirit-filled lifestyle of repentance and faith and obedience displays their family identity, displays where their loyalties lie, and it confirms their true and inseparable union and fellowship with Jesus. I'll end with our daily need of God's grace and spirit. What is your only comfort in life and death? In the first service, a little girl sitting in the front blurted out the answer about, about that we belong to Christ because her parents are catechizing her and she's learning what that means to hear a question, what is your only comfort? Little kids are getting this, Okay. It's not simply that Jesus paid for your sins on the cross. That is true. But it's not simply that. It is also that Jesus has set you and me free from all the power or the tyranny of the devil. Brothers and sisters, we are free from evil and the controlling power of Satan over our lives. We are truly free. Liberated, and, and we're not empty, and we're not defenseless, just sitting there, not ready to handle what Satan brings to us. Our Christ is our defense. The tyranny of the devil in our lives has been overpowered by the supremacy of Jesus Christ, and we have been given the Spirit of Christ to inhabit us. What a blessing! What a defense. Daily, we need His defense. And daily, brothers and sisters, we have his defense against the wiles of the devil. We have his defense through faith and through the Spirit's indwelling power and work in our lives. Paul wrote to his brothers and sisters in Christ who were in Rome, and, and I'm preaching the same thing to you today here in Mannheim, Pennsylvania, many years later. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. Amen? That's good news. That's the gospel. Beloved siblings of Jesus Christ the Lord, we are alive in Christ. Christ is alive in us. Christ's spirit is giving life to us now. We are not empty. There is a master in the house. And he is defending us against evil and filling us with that which is good. Do you know that that Jesus doesn't simply save you and then leave you empty and alone to figure it all out on on your own. No way. He fills you every day with his spirit who lives in you. You need the gospel. I need the gospel every single day. We live by it. Christ didn't simply die for you on the cross many years ago. He serves you today. He serves you tomorrow. He serves you every day till he calls you home. You depend on his grace and his spirit every day. Are you asking? Are you thanking? Heidelberg 31 says that as our eternal king, Jesus governs us by his word and spirit and I love this part, as our king, and defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. Yes, yes, the king has entered your house and is the master of the house, serving you by governing you by his word and spirit, defending you against the attacks of the devil, and preserving you in the redemption that he has achieved for you. He's actively serving you, brothers and sisters, from within you. He loves you so much. Heidelberg 51 tells us that Christ, our head, and we could say Christ, the master of our house, is pouring out heavenly gifts upon us by His Spirit and by His power. He is defending and preserving us against all enemies. Oh, how near and dear we are to the Lord's heart, brothers and sisters. He cherishes us. We belong to Him. He's providing for us. This is so good to know that we are close, truly close to Jesus. I have comfort for you, dear saints, and it comes through the words of Dr. Calvin. Whatever may be the fiercest or violence, the fierceness or violence of Satan's attacks, they ought not to intimidate the sons of God, whom the invincible power of the Holy Spirit preserves in safety. We know that the punishment which is here threatened is addressed to none but those who despise the grace of God and who by extinguishing the light of faith and banishing the desire of godliness become profane. You have to know where the blessing and where the warning is. Verses 43 through 45 are a threat only to those who despise the grace and spirit of Christ. You, beloved, you, beloved, are different. You who belong to Christ are different. You need not fear, for Christ is your defense against evil. From within you, Christ is fighting for you. From within you, Christ is preserving you in safety, in comfort, in rest, and in the redemption that he has achieved for you self-discipline morality is very different from spirit-filled discipleship. Good without God leaves people empty and susceptible to unspeakable evil. D.A. Carson said simply the way for us to be as close to Jesus as his nearest and dearest is to do the will of the Father. So let me ask, do you want to be close to Jesus? Do you want to be assured that you actually have his love and acceptance? If so, look to Christ. Look to see what he is and what he has done. Go to him. Trust in him. Receive his rest and take comfort in him. That's your refuge. That he is your refuge. That he is your defense. That he is your strength. Be filled with his spirit as Paul talked about in Ephesians 5.18. And devote yourself to Doing your father's will, and your father's will is helpfully explained in the Bible. We know we can know it, it's not a mystery. We can know what to do, how to honor him. Think of the Ten Commandments very easy. So, will you keep your father's commands perfectly? No way, can't. Jesus is the only perfect one, but Christ has begun that work in you. You see. He has, he has set you on a course to obey him and, and Christ will complete the work. Look for small steps ahead. Look for small uh, encouragements. Look for that evidence of the Spirit's work in you. Look for progress. Look for the fruit of true faith in your life and then thank God for his grace and thank God for his Spirit. Your increasing love and delight to live according to your Father's will, it does something for you. It assures you that the Spirit is bringing your new nature to life and that you truly are a Spirit-filled disciple of Jesus.